With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The scene at 9538 Kelsey Meadows Court on the night of December 23, 2012, was chaos. From the moment Herman Melgar and his family arrived until the early morning hours of the next day, there were many moving parts acting simultaneously, all in an attempt to figure out what happened to Jim and Sandy. Maurice Carpenter wasn't the only Harris County Sheriff's deputy working on the Melgar scene that night. One of the first officers to arrive on the scene was Jennifer Martinez. She was dispatched to the scene along with Deputy Jay McCants. As the two arrived, Martinez was the first law enforcement officer to make contact with Sandy. EMS was already on the scene. Jennifer Martinez is the officer that testified at trial, and also explained on the Dateline episode, that the scene did not look like a typical burglary evident by the fact that there were several items of value that were not taken. Personally, I disagree with that assessment. In my opinion, if the intention was burglary, and not murder, a murder occurring would absolutely throw a kink into even the most well-thought-out plan. As Jim Clemente has explained more than a few times, the most typical response by most people after they've murdered someone is to get as far away from the body as humanly possible, and as quickly as possible. It's for this reason that we've been able to profile an offender with a known relationship to the victim in cases like Heyman Lee's murder. The unsub in that case spent a lot of time with Hay's body and took an incredible risk by transporting her in a vehicle to the burial site. Not to mention the amount of time it took to bury her body in frozen ground just 100 feet from a roadway. These are not risks that a random, unknown offender would take. There's nothing connecting them to the body, so they get away from it. And quickly making a few hundred or even a few thousand dollars is going to be trumped by the fear of being arrested for murder nearly every time. It's that school of thought that, in my mind, negates the importance of the items that weren't taken. Nonetheless, that was the opinion of Deputy Martinez by the time trial rolled around in 2017. This is her report from the scene in 2012. On December 23, 2012, I and Deputy Jay McCants were dispatched to 9538 Kelsey Meadows Court in reference to a homicide. Upon arrival, Cypher Medic No. 1 was on the location in the master bedroom. 
EMS advised that the victim was pronounced deceased at 1647 hours. The victim was later identified as Melgar Jaime Estuardo. Jaime was found lying on his back with his head towards the south and his feet towards the north. Jaime's body was in a slouch position with his upper shoulder area against the north side interior closet wall. Jaime was unclothed and had what appeared to be a jacket covering his genitals. Jaime's feet were bound together with a phone cord and what appeared to be a rope was found tossed on his arms and chest. Jaime appeared to have a knife wound to his abdomen. Outside the closet where Jaime was lying was a chair next to the bed along with a medical bathing chair which had blood on them. Let me pause right here for a minute. There are a few items in this paragraph that I want to draw your attention to. The first being the rope. Martinez described it as being, quote, found tossed on his arms and chest, end quote. What do you picture when reading that? When I read it, I imagine exactly what it says. Just a random rope tossed over the body. That is what it says, but that's not what I see in the crime scene photos. In no way was this rope just tossed over Jim's body. The red rope loops around his torso, and there's a knot tied in it at about the middle of his abdomen. While the description of the rope may seem insignificant, it paints a very different picture. A random rope just laying on top of someone is very, very different than a rope that goes behind the body, around their back, across their chest, and that is tied in a knot. And the biggest difference is, if this is in fact a staged scene, then it's absolutely brilliant. In order to stage things this way, Sandy would have had to have the forethought to not just tie Jim up to make it appear as though he was restrained, but actually make the scene appear as though someone attempted to tie him up but was unsuccessful, leaving the rope with the knot around his torso. Now there is more going on with this rope, but we'll wait till we get back into Maurice's report to dig in any deeper. The second item in this paragraph from Martinez's report that I want to draw your attention to is her description of Jim's injuries. Now, she's not a medical examiner, and not even the crime scene investigator on this case, so we wouldn't expect her to know all the details. The reason that I bring up this statement is because of the, quote, overkill impression that many listeners have based on what we've heard so far. All Jennifer Martinez saw was a single stab wound. Now let's get back into her report. The bedroom appeared to have been ransacked with the dresser drawers open. The bed was positioned along the east wall and had several miscellaneous items scattered across it. There was a cell phone, a couple of blue jean pants, and what appeared to be a female's wallet and several shopping cards on the bed. Upon further notice, the clothing in the drawers were still folded and appeared to not have been disturbed. There was a small drinking glass with sliced lemons located on the side of an exercise machine within the room. In the master bathroom was a bathtub half full of water with a black-handled butcher knife in it, along with some clothing items. Along the tub was a glass bottle of liquor and a small drinking glass with sliced lemons in it, a bowl of strawberries and cream which had not been eaten. On the floor of the restroom were a couple of rugs, one looked to have been possibly torn. There were also several pieces of brown cloth material along the floor next to a cloth chair. The cloth material appeared to have been cut and was in several pieces. Moving on, at this point, Martinez makes contact with Sandy. Melgar Sandra Jean was in the master bathroom laying next to the toilet crying. 
Sandra was wearing what appeared to be a black satin dress-like nightgown with a black satin robe, blue jean pants, with pink and white socks. I asked Sandra what happened, and she said she wasn't sure. Sandra said she was tied up in the closet, and her sister-in-law, Maria Melgar, found her and cut her loose. In parentheses, the closet where Sandra was found is located in the master bathroom. I asked Sandra who tied her up and placed her in the closet, and Sandra replied she doesn't remember. I told Sandra that it was very important that she calm down and try to remember what happened. Sandra said that the last thing she remembered was her and her husband in the bathtub taking a bath together. Sandra said the dogs were barking and Jamie got out of the tub to put the dogs up. Sandra said she does not remember anything after that point. I noticed Sandra wearing a nightgown and robe. I asked if she was wearing the nightgown last night and Sandra replied yes. Sandra said she was not wearing the pants that she placed them on after her sister-in-law untied her. Sandra said she wasn't feeling good and needed to use the restroom. Sandra, while on the toilet, complained of having diarrhea. After Sandra's bowel movement, she was brought into the living room to have EMS check her welfare. Sandra said she periodically has seizures and blackouts. Sandra said she wasn't feeling good and needed to go to the restroom. I then escorted Sandra to the secondary restroom where she complained of diarrhea again. After Sandra finished using the restroom, she attempted to wash her hands. I stopped Sandra from washing her hands and advised her to allow her hands to air dry. No soap was used, only minimum water. After Sandra's hands were dry, brown bags were placed on her hands as standard procedure. EMS medics checked Sandra's blood pressure and vital signs, which came out normal. The area around Sandra's ankles and wrists, where she showed she was tied, did not have any signs of injury or redness. Sandra immediately said she has a blood circulatory problem. Sandra was asked if she would like to be transported to the hospital for further testing, and she said no. Sandra signed a refusal for the EMS medics. There are a few areas of concern here. In this report, Sandy is described as lying next to the toilet crying. In Martinez's notes, quote, I told Sandra that it was very important that she calm down, end quote. This is in direct conflict with trial testimony claiming that Sandy was faking her crying with no real tears. At the time this report was written, the crying was real, and she was anything but calm. Secondly, we have a big miss here by Martinez and the EMS responders. Other Harris County officers took photos of Sandy's arms later in the night, noting red marks on her forearms and a large bruise on her left bicep. It was also noted by other responders that Sandy was complaining of pain on the left side of her head. And lastly, just food for thought, when she was asked what happened, note that Sandy only says that she was tied up in the closet. No mention of the chair barricading the door, which makes sense because if she was in fact unconscious when she was bound, she wouldn't know that the door was barricaded. Now back to the report. During the investigation, I asked Sandra if she locked the front and back door. She said yes, but she did not set the alarm and that she never sets it. I noticed there was a bucket of what smelled like Clorox and water in it along with a mop. The bucket and mop were located in the dining room. I also noticed little pieces of shredded paper throughout the residence. The shredded paper was also in the vacuum, which was in the living room quarters. I asked Sandra if she would voluntarily give her consent to search, and Sandra replied yes. Sandra signed a voluntary consent form, which was later released to Deputy Carpenter. To secure the residence, Sandra was advised that she would be placed in the back of a patrol vehicle. Sandra advised she needed to use the restroom again. I escorted her to the restroom and allowed her to use the restroom. 
Sandra was then placed in a patrol vehicle. During the interview, Sandra never asked about Jaime. This is the conclusion of Martinez's report. As you can see, her interpretation of the scene is much the same as Maurice Carpenter's. As she writes, she is sure to give the impression that the bedroom was ransacked, but clothes were still folded in the dresser drawers. She notes specifics like the mop bucket and the paper shreds, but makes no mention of the missing Xbox and TV, or even the scattered jewelry boxes. And it was noteworthy enough for Martinez to mention that Sandy never asked about Jim. Bum, bum, bum. But here's the thing. Sandy was a former nurse. She'd seen and touched plenty of dead bodies in her day. I've also had the unfortunate experience of dealing with the dead on many occasions. And I can tell you from personal experience that there's no mistaking the distinct feeling of touching a body that has been deceased for multiple hours. Remember that Maria, Herman, and Sandy all remember Sandy checking Jim for a pulse when she found him. The body of a person that has been dead for 15 hours would be cold to the touch. It's unsettling. And by that point, rigor is also typically set in. Not to mention the fact that even a quick glance at Jim is enough to know that he was deceased. Keep in mind that Martinez's report indicates the EMS responders had already pronounced Jim dead at 4.47 p.m., within a minute or two of their arrival. Point being, there was zero question in Sandy's mind that her husband was gone. But it's noted in the report and it was brought up at trial as though it was some sort of smoking gun that Sandy didn't care about Jim. She knew that he was dead, long since dead. She was inconsolable according to witnesses and had to be told to calm down after getting up from laying on the floor next to the toilet crying. What exactly was she expected to ask? Is my husband still dead? Jennifer Martinez was the first officer to enter the scene that night. But as you know, Maurice Carpenter was the highly trained and skilled crime scene investigator responsible for thoroughly picking apart the crime scene. So far, we've covered his reporting on the entire house short of the closet where Jim was found. So next, let's get back into his report and see if he saw the same things that I did when he describes the scene in detail. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Avoid where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Throughout his report on the bulk of the Melgar's house, Maurice Carpenter, to put it kindly, was selective about what items he included. He was also very consistent in deciding which crime scene details to leave out of his report. In a nutshell, anything that he thought indicated that this was a staged scene, created by Sandy after murdering her husband, was front and center in the report. 
anything that might indicate a burglary, i.e. the missing Xbox in the living room, the empty jewelry boxes, the missing TV in the bedroom, etc., was left out. A premature theory driving the narrative of his report. But now, the rubber meets the road, so to speak. We've saved what should be the most important part of Carpenter's report for last. The most telling aspect of a crime scene like this is typically going to be the body in the area around the body. It's easy to stage a house, but it's much more difficult to stage a body to look like something happened other than what actually did. Blood spatter, lividity, rigor, hemorrhaging, and non-hemorrhaging wounds are tough if not impossible to fake. For example, you can't cut someone after they're dead and make it look like the wound came during a struggle. Dead bodies don't bleed, they don't hemorrhage. Cleaning off a wall will leave telltale signs, and creating a more advantageous blood spatter pattern? Well, that's just not going to happen. Defensive wounds and broken nails cannot be undone. They just can't. And oftentimes, wounds like these create puzzle pieces that can be matched up to suspects. Broken nails equals scratches. Find the suspect with scratch marks, and you just might have your man. Or woman. The body in the area around it is the cornerstone of this crime scene. We're first going to see how Carpenter describes it, then I'll tell you what I see. From the report. On the south side of the bed and in front of the open closet door was a chair and a stool. The chair, which was facing east, was constructed of a wood frame and a cushioned cloth seat and was of the same style as the dining room chairs. There was a blue striped blanket lying across the seat of the chair. There was what appeared to be blood on the seat back consisting of drops and blood flow with downward directionality and pooling. There was a small amount of blood on the blanket and what appeared to be drip blood on the seat cushion and frame below the seat back. There were apparent drip blood stains on the carpet just below the seat back. The stool was located to the west of, behind the chair. It was constructed of a white plastic seat and metal adjustable legs. There's blood on the stool seat that appeared to be a combination of dripped and transfer blood stains in an area of smeared blood. There were several spots of blood on the bed sheets near the chair and stool. Let's start with the chair. As we mentioned on last week's follow-up, there was a lot of white dog hair on the blanket that was on the chair. That's a detail that might not have seemed significant at the time, so we'll give Carpenter a pass on that one. But the blood drops? That is a different story. Carpenter described the drops as having a downward flow, and that's true of most of them. Gravity is obviously going to cause blood to run downward. Therefore, we can deduce that at some point, while most of the blood was still wet, the chair was in an upright position, just like it was found. But if you zoom in on the drops and look at them very closely, you'll see that several of them are perfectly round and have congealed, but did not run downward. So what does this tell us? It tells me that it's highly likely that at some point the chair was laying down on its back. These droplets are not high-velocity spatters like you would get from an arterial spurt, coughing, or cast-off. These are drips, straight down onto the chair's back. If I'm right, the chair would have had to have been on its back for long enough for these small drops to dry to the point that they wouldn't run when the chair was placed back into an upright position. 
The larger areas of blood that are indeed running down the back of the chair appear to be transfer blood. There's no pattern, no indication of velocity. Someone or something that was covered in blood touched the chair in these places. And then there's the stool. This one is a bit trickier. As I said, it appears that the chair that was always kept at or near where it was found, at some point during the attack was laying on its back, but the white stool is sitting directly behind it. Then to further complicate the issue, the stool has a transfer smudge of blood in one corner, but part of the blood stain is hidden under the comforter from the bed, which is about an inch above it. And there's no blood on the comforter. Add to that a few high-velocity blood droplets, and your head will start to spin. Because they come from the direction of the bed, which is only six inches away, and again, there's no blood on the comforter. There's also a clear outline in the blood stain. It appears that something was on the stool when the blood was transferred. But there are no bloody items anywhere around it that could be matched to the outline. And then let's not forget that according to Sandy and Liz, the stool was normally kept in the closet. So what does all this tell me? The stool was not behind the chair during the commission of the murder. It was placed there after. Remember that Jim's gun was in the closet. Maybe the stool got kicked out as he was scrambling for the gun. Maybe he picked it up and threw it at his attacker. I don't know. But what I do know is that no one was sitting on that stool behind him giving him a massage when he was stabbed. Another big hit to the prosecution's theory on the case is the complete lack of any blood spatter outside of the closet. Remember that Colleen Barnett's theory is that Sandy attacked Jim and stabbed him while he was sitting in the chair next to the bed. But the wall next to the chair is vacant of any blood spatter whatsoever. The white door right in front of the chair also has no spatter on it. There's none on the carpet, the trim, nothing. Just the blood on the chair and eight small droplets on the bed sheet. These appear to be high-velocity spatter marks and appear to come from the direction of the closet except the chair's in the way. The blood couldn't have made it to this location on the bed from the closet with the chair in that position. Another indicator that it was actually laying on the ground and that the stool wasn't behind it. There's no way to piece together what happened at this point, but I can confidently tell you what did not happen. No one was stabbed to death or likely even cut outside of the closet. Now let's get back into Carpenter's report. The interior dimensions of the walk-in closet were 8 feet east-west and 4 feet north-south. The closet door opening was 2 feet across. The light inside the closet was on. The northwest corner of the closet was a 5-drawer file cabinet with all of its drawers closed. Across the south wall of the closet were upper and lower shelves and clothes rods. There are hanging clothes on the rods and clothing and other items on the shelves. At the east end of the closet was a small safe and a storage bin. There was what appeared to be blood on the handle of the safe. Along the north wall was a shelving unit. On the floor in front of the shelving unit was a briefcase which was closed. In my opinion, the closet paints a fairly clear picture. 
There's blood spatter everywhere inside. On the floor, on the walls, on the stuff on the floor, on the clothing hanging on the shelves, on the filing cabinet, everywhere. This is clearly where the attack actually took place. But the bulk of the blood is front and center where Jim's body was found. The clothes on the shelves are either pushed aside or pulled down from that area, which is directly in from the doorway. Now I'm going to give you a little spoiler here. The gun was on the shelf directly above where these clothes are moved and directly above Jim's head as he passed away. The safe, on the other hand, is all the way to the left of the closet door. There's very little blood in that area. Just a bit of high-velocity spatter on the floor. And I mean just a bit. Nothing like the area where Jim's body was found. With that being said, Carpenter is absolutely correct. The safe handle does have blood on it. What he didn't say is that on the floor, directly in front of the safe, was the safe key. According to Liz, this particular safe required both the key and the combination to open. Now, I can see the key being hidden. I can see it being kept in the lock. What I cannot imagine is why it would be left on the floor just a few inches away from the safe. Unless, of course, someone tried to use it to open the safe and then realized that they couldn't do it without the combination. But more importantly, I also cannot fathom why Maurice would leave this little nugget out of his report. Speaking of which, let's get back into it. The decedent, who was nude, was lying on the floor of the closet with his back against the south wall, his lower torso on the floor, and his legs extended outward to the north. His shoulders and head were slumped over to his left side. His left arm was bent at the elbow with the forearm resting on the floor and covered with articles of clothing and a clear plastic laundry bag. A white tissue was later found near the decedent's left hand. His right arm was to his right side. His right leg was extended straight out and his left leg was slightly bent at the knee with his left ankle under his right ankle. His feet were resting on the floor within the closet doorway and near the east door frame. There was a red cord draped over the decedent at his waist and on his left leg. The ends of the cord were tied together in a knot. The decedent had what appeared to be a cut on the right side of his throat, puncture wounds to his chest and abdomen, cuts to his right hand and an abrasion on his left knee. There was blood on his face, torso, arms, hands, and legs. There was a blue jacket and a brown jacket lying over his legs. The brown jacket had saturation bloodstains, and the blue jacket had apparent drip bloodstains on the right sleeve. An empty plastic packaging was later found within the folds of the blue jacket. There was a clear plastic laundry bag wrapped around the decedent's lower left leg. There was a gray phone cord wrapped loosely around the decedent's ankles with its ends tied in a knot. There was a white bath towel on the floor under the decedent's legs. The blood-stained towel extended out into the bedroom. During a later examination, a piece of clear tape and numerous strands of hair were found adhering to the towel. On the floor near the towel was a white undershirt and an open box from an electronic device. Just to the north of the bath towel was a black house shoe. Carpenter didn't do too bad here. But let me just hit on some of the items that he noted. There are two clear plastic laundry bags. One is wrapped just around one leg, but his ankles are bound together, which is puzzling. And the other dry cleaning bag is on Jim's left side as he described. There is a tissue just under Jim's left hand. It has a considerable amount of blood on it, 
but also has some spatter. At a glance, I thought maybe, somehow, he had a tissue handy to wipe up blood. But then I look closer, and the palms of his hands are completely covered in blood, as well as his fingers. But the tissue isn't. Next, the red cord. Alright, you blew this one, Maurice. First of all, it's not on his legs. At all. Now, he did mention the knot, but he also said, quote, draped over the decedent. It wasn't draped over him. It was wrapped around him, but in a very interesting way. The red rope was actually tied into a lasso with a large loop at the end. But the loop of the lasso wasn't around Jim's body. Confused yet? Well, let me try to explain. So imagine a lasso, like a six-foot rope with a three-foot loop on the end. The straight part of the rope starts on the floor to Jim's left. It continues under his body behind his back. Then it comes up on the right side and over his abdomen. That's where the knot is located. From the knot comes the loop. The loop is laid out the rest of the way over his abdomen and comes to rest back on his left side. So what does that mean? Well, for starters, if Sandy staged this, her plan must have been to frame a rodeo cowboy. Oh yeah, and Maurice also failed to mention the fact that there is visible blood spatter on the rope. Which is a neat trick if it was, quote, draped around Jim after he was dead. I'd also like to hear his theory about how the rope was tucked underneath Jim's body without any indication that his body was moved. In my opinion, I think the red lasso, coupled with the slip-type figure-eight knot that Sandy was bound with, indicates that these items were brought to the scene with the unsubs and pre-tied in order to make for quick and easy bindings. After a closer examination of Sandy's bindings, I believe the type of knot used is called a handcuff knot. We used to use this type of knot in the fire service to quickly create a wrist or ankle harness to pull victims out of fires. I'll be putting a video up on the fan page soon to demonstrate. The bottom line is that the appearance here is that someone attempted to tie up Jim's arms, but they were unsuccessful. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. We're going to get into all of the specific injuries in detail in next week's episode. But I do want to touch on the injury to Jim's knee. Carpenter mentions it in his report because it's clearly visible. Jim has what is obviously a fresh rug burn on his left knee. And now let's talk about the phone cord on Jim's ankles. Carpenter described it as loosely wrapped around his ankles with the ends tied into a knot. That's true, but let me get a little more specific. The phone cord is wrapped around Jim's ankles four times and then tied into what looks like a quadruple overhand knot. The binding is a little loose, as Carpenter stated, but I'm not sure that they were loose enough to actually slip them off his ankles, but it may have been possible. 
But aside from the looseness of the bindings, there are some very important details left out of the report that make a huge difference. First of all, there are visible ligature marks on Jim's ankles. Purple lines indicating that Jim was in fact alive and fighting against the bindings at some point. This, of course, is in direct conflict with the theory that the bindings were applied post-mortem by Sandy. But that's not all. There's another very clear telltale indicator that Jim's ankles were tied up while he was being stabbed. There is blood spatter on Jim's legs, ankles, and feet. And there is also the same blood spatter on the bindings. Let me make this perfectly clear. Whether it was from cast-off or spurting, the same blood that spattered onto Jim's ankles is also present on the phone cord bindings, meaning his ankles were tied up while he was being stabbed, while he was still alive and fighting. Couple that with the mysterious placement of the white stool, the multiple defensive wounds, the lasso, and the rug burn on his knee, then add in the place where he was found and the location of the gun, and the scene starts to make some sense. Jim had to have been compliant when his ankles were bound. Your legs are the strongest muscle in your body, and your hands and fingers are amongst the weakest. There is just no way that you can wrap someone's ankles four times and tie what, like I said, looks to be a quadruple knot if they're fighting against you. Not to mention the extremely vulnerable position you would be in, bent over with your face in front of feet that could easily kick and knock your block off. I couldn't do it with my seven-year-old, much less a grown man. Jim let someone tie up his ankles. Then our unsub or unsubs were about to tie up his arms with the lasso when he made a move for the gun. He tripped or was knocked to the ground, scuffing his knee. His attacker then began stabbing him as Jim fought back, spattering blood all over the closet and on his body, including his legs, ankles, feet, and subsequently the phone cord. Now let's get back into the last couple paragraphs in Carpenter's report. I observed apparent bloodstains on the closet wall behind the decedent that appeared to be a combination of transfer and cast-off stains. There was blood on the hanging clothes beside the decedent and on the clothes rod, shelf, and hanging clothes above the decedent. There was blood on the closet floor consisting of transfer and drip bloodstains. There were possible cast-off bloodstains on the filing cabinet, on the shelving unit, and on the doorframe. Homicide investigator Fisher later directed me to a pistol which was lying under articles of clothing on the lower closet shelf, just above where the decedent had been located. The pistol was a Beretta Model 20 25 caliber semi-automatic handgun. There was one live cartridge in the chamber and eight live cartridges in the magazine. This part of the scene is confirmation, in my opinion, that Jim was going for his gun. Carpenter mentions cast-off and transfer bloodstains on the hanging clothes directly located over Jim's head, but here's the thing. There's only one place amongst all of the hanging clothes where we see transfer stains. There's a light blue and a dark blue dress shirt hanging directly over the loaded Beretta. The cuffs of the sleeves are literally right in front of it. It's painfully obvious that Jim, with bloody hands, grabbed those shirt sleeves reaching for the hidden gun. Jim Melgar, as is the expression in Texas, went out with his boots on. He did not go down without a fight. Battered and bruised, and even stabbed, 
he continued to fight off his attacker until he finally succumbed to his injuries. Sadly, his hands were just inches away from the gun that he had placed in that exact location in preparation for an incident just like this one. This scene speaks to Jim's character. Somehow, he was convinced to allow his attackers to tie up his ankles and was in the process of allowing them to also tie up his arms when something triggered him to fight. But why would he allow himself to be bound? Perhaps a promise to leave him and his wife unharmed if he complied. But then why change gears? Why fight? In my opinion, Jim heard the promise to not harm his wife being broken in the other room, and he risked everything to protect the woman he loved. Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Michael Bussing is your executive producer, and Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. And Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com also created our Season 6 logo. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 a month. And we also have reward levels on the Patreon page that include access to the behind-the-scenes videos of the taping of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts, Truth and Justice hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. And for all of you tweeters, you can follow along on Twitter at truthjusticepod. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on the case. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.